listening to the spiritual exercises. I'm Rachel Amaday. So happy to be here with you all. Um, I was so pleased yesterday. My sister is in town and she is someone who I have wanted to have on as a guest and we got to record a podcast that I will be releasing later this week. So I was spending my time yesterday with her um, just talking about the role of women in scripture and culturally and where are we at with understanding this role. I think it's a really important discussion. And I hope that the discussion that we had sparked some ideas for you. Um, because this is kind of difficult. It's It seems mysterious in some ways. And it's why I think we have been all over the map with what women are, you know, called to do supposed to do what position are they supposed to have in the church? Where are they supposed to be serving? You know, all of the above. And we've been told many things. My sister and I have a good honest discussion about it, in which I think think we have some differing perspective, actually, but I think the discussion is worth having because women, you are valued. And, you know, I'm just going to preface this now. This is not to say that men aren't of the same value. Men are of the same value. But I think we have lots of positions in churches for men that we know men can have any role. What role can women have? What, what roles should they be playing? And then how have we messed this up over time? And why? Why has this been such a messy debacle through human history and even to this day? So um, we get to some of that in our discussion. I will be releasing that later this week. Today, I wanted to finish my reading of chapter 12 from my book, Writing Paul. And I just want to remind you why. I decided it was time to do this. I have some new listeners and lots of people seem to ask most of their questions about church doctrine based around Paul and Paul's writings. And even the discussion on women, most of what churches have decided to do with women have been based on Paul's writings, not really testimony from the rest of scripture. And so listen, if you're going to go to Paul for every single answer, which again, in my book, I don't think you should do things that way. Paul didn't make up a new religion, so you should really read the front of the book. But um, if you're going to go to Paul for everything, you should get Paul right, and you should be accurately interpreting Paul. We're going to get into some really nitty-gritty passages here, and I will say, um, regarding specifically 2 Timothy, since writing my book, I've come into even more information, maybe more knowledge about what's going on there, and there's a lot of theories. And so I don't think what I've written in my book is complete at all about what Paul has to say or what Paul has to say about women. But I do think it needs to be something that we have honest conversations about discussing context. Who is Paul writing to? I have hammered this this phrase over and over again. The Bible was written for us, but not all of it was written to us. And with Paul, we don't have the letters that the churches wrote to him. We don't know what questions exactly they were asking. What we know is Paul's responses and how he was attempting to hammer out really difficult problems of the day. Some problems we don't even really have anymore. Last week, we ended at the section where I discussed circumcision. There were really strange things going on culturally at the time, both with Roman culture and with Judaism around circumcision. 
And it was a debate for both, for all of the culture of the day. It was one of the most popular issues. Uh, I would say it, it's very much likened to um, abortion today or gender identity today. These were the This was a big discussion at the time. And so that's why you see Paul bringing up circumcision so often. Not to mention we have other areas of scripture where God says, you know, you need to circumcise your heart. And the circumcision stands for a particular position before the Lord. Heart always comes first. Um, and then the physical, right? Then obedience. But if you're not doing these things because of your love and relationship with the Lord, um, okay, you can do them out of fear, but that's not re- what God really wants, right? When God talks about having a bride in the end, do you think that the God of all things that Yeshua Our Savior who died for us wants us to approach him in fear? That's just the start of wisdom. That's just the start of knowledge. That is not the fullness or the depth. That's not where you're ending up with the Lord. God wants you to end up so in love with him that you enact obedience. And Paul's hammering that point home over and over again, specifically with the circumcision issue. If you have not listened to the first two of these podcasts where I'm reading this chapter, um, let me encourage you, go back and listen to those first because I'm starting right in the middle of the chapter here. You're going to have absolutely no context. I'm actually giving a list of things to watch out for when you are reading Paul, some rules or some guidelines, so to speak, that will help you read Paul with better with better vision, right? Either take off the filter that you have, hopefully these will help you take off your filter, or will at least help point things out to you you did not see previously. And so here we are at my um, my kind of guideline number seven to remember when reading Paul, and it is this, and I'm going to start in on the book now. Paul is specific. Translators were not always as specific. Paul deals in specifics, so I will attempt here to give you an example of why this is a rule to remember as you read Paul's letters. Let's head to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. They say this, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, end quote. 119 Ministries explains the dividing wall in their Pauline Paradox Series 5, Ephesians. They say this, the primary definition for the Greek word translated as abolished in verse 15 means to render powerless, to deprive of strength and force, influence and power, end quote. We usually understand abolish to mean what Merriam-Webster's defines as to completely do away with something. So why didn't translators go with a different word? We cannot state for certain, but most translators are biased into believing that our Messiah did indeed abolish the law of God. However, the primary definition offers a slightly different spin on the particular Greek word used in Ephesians 2.15. According to Strong's Greek lexicon, Ketargio or ketargio, the word abolish in Greek, is to render idle, unemployed, inactive, inoperative, to cause a person to think or have no further efficiency, to deprive of force, influence, or power. 
And in case for some reason Strong's appears biased to you, consider how Thayer's Greek lexicon defines tachargeo. To render idle, unemployed, inactive, inoperative, to deprive of its strength, to make barren. To cause a person or a thing to have no further efficiency, to deprive of force, influence, or power. Basically, Thayer's backs up Strong's definition. Now let's read Ephesians 2, 14-15 again with this information. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, rending powerless the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do you see how that fits? The law of God was not hostile to the Gentiles. The law of God is not hostile to those who come into the faith. Rather, the Messiah came to bring Jew and Gentile together. That was one purpose of our Messiah's coming. The Gentiles were not to be strangers or aliens or subject to the hostility of the Jews, but citizens of the commonwealth of Israel. They were to be made one together. End quote. Yeshua broke down the dividing wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. This hostility had rendered the law powerless for the Gentiles. We know in Greco-Roman culture that it wasn't just circumcision that formed a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. There was an intense dislike of each other on both sides. Through Christ, this division is broken down so that the law of God can be made powerful for the Gentile as it is for the Jew. Here in Ephesians, we have a situation where the prevailing interpretation of Paul's writing would go against all other scripture. But with some study, we see once again that Yeshua did not come to abolish the law. He said that himself. In this case, we have been dealing with a translational issue. We are downstream from the original language, and that sometimes means the meaning of a word is slightly, let's say, adjusted. It doesn't happen often, but it does happen. The translators themselves may have been absolutely baffled by Paul's writings. I know I am at times. So we have to look at primary definitions and alignment and context. See applications 4 and 6. Now, on to Paul's specificity in language and our ability to pay close attention. Tertiary readings of Paul have led us all into all sorts of abolitions of Torah. Let's look at Colossians 2, 13 to 14. It says this, and I quote, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What did he nail to the cross? Go back, read it again if you need to, and carefully answer. Often Christians in their doctrine, say he nailed the legal demands to the cross. But no, grammatically, thematically, he nailed the record of debt to the cross. He did not nail his own Torah to the cross. I suppose you could say he nailed himself and he is the Torah, but then he is resurrected, which means that Torah is resurrected with him and has a new place within our hearts. Paul knew this. That's why Paul doesn't claim that the law died that day. He claims that on that day, our debts were paid. Yeshua nailed our debt, our sin, our death to that tree. Perhaps it was the law of sin and death and its demands that were nailed there that day. And what a relief. Yeshua's death frees us from the enmity that divides from God. It is not God's law that divides us from him, but our sin that produces death. I love this next, this next part due to its ringing endorsement of a law-abiding Paul. 
Colossians 2, 16-19. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. End quote. He tells them not to allow judgment for their observance of God's Moedim, or feast days, which are aligned with new moons, nor to be judged for their observance of Sabbath or their clean eating. He says the substance of these observances belong to Christ. Woohoo! Thank you, Paul. Perhaps I'm onto something after all. He then goes on to call out those who insist on asceticism and worship of angels. Asceticism is severe religious self-denial. Monks and nuns and those who practice self-torture and religious veganism, etc., would probably, according to Paul, be practicing asceticism. Likewise, the worship of angels and similar practices are not helpful for the believer. These, Paul tells us, are not to be added to the practices God has given. For Paul, asceticism and idolatry are separate from the head, separate from the roots of our faith. In the Torah, that sort of self-flagellation and extraneous worship is non-existent. He finishes with this, Colossians 2.20-22. And I quote, Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, end quote. Man-made human precepts attached to religion will not bring the freedom that simple Torah observance will. Veganism, as part of religious practice, long dietary restrictions, extra-biblical fasting, fish Fridays, body of Christ hosts, vows of silence, vows of celibacy, etc., while sometimes these practices may be good, and may even be of God in your personal walk with Him, to turn them into part of your everyday doctrine in following Yeshua will do nothing for you. These are part of the elemental spirits of the world, according to Paul. Clean eating is not the same as veganism, extreme dieting, or fasting. While Leviticus 11 defines what God says is food, it does not limit what you may eat as long as it is food, according to God's definition— all fruits and vegetables and clean meats and fish are food and are thereby edible according to the Lord. To take foods off of that list or severely limit yourself at times of the year as part of a religious faith-based act should be sincerely scrutinized. I have fasted and prayed because I felt called to over many issues. God has blessed those times and those prayers. But would I tell you that you must do the same exact fast that I did and at the same exact time that I did it? Should I do it each year at the same time attributing it to biblical instruction? Should I become a vegan as part of my relationship with the Lord? Paul says no. Follow God's laws regarding celebrations and food and drink. Any additional religious asceticism is man-made and may lead to nothing. This asceticism was specific to the first century as well. Catholic history is replete with it, and even today I find many who add laws to God's, making the faith burdensome and often lacking in joy. Paul is specific about these issues, proving the righteousness and productiveness of God's laws versus man-made ones. Now, let's head to 1 Timothy 2 and a widely disputed passage. 1 Timothy 2, verses 11-15, through 15, and I quote, 
Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was not formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. End quote. Um, hey, Paul, saved through childbearing? Where is that scripturally? Where is that prophetically? Looking, looking, not finding. Now I'm going to have an aside from the book here. So I did hear something very interesting, and um, perhaps it is a small allusion to what Paul is saying, that in the beginning, and I talk about this with my sister, when Adam and Eve fell and the curse occurred, what... God says to Eve is, you're going to have pain in childbirth now. This is going to be much harder for you. But what God says to both of them about these outcomes that he is allowing to into their lives because of the fall, he says, they're for your own good. Okay, why? Now we talk about why would pain and suffering and toil and hardship, why would this be for our own good? Well, think about this. After the fall, Instead of being like God in certain ways, they lost their like Godness. Now we have sin. Now we have selfishness. Now we have self-destructive behavior and destructive behavior of others and the planet. And we have all sorts of behaviors. And God says to them, basically, it is through these hardships that you will become more like me again. I really think that is probably there. Okay, so Perhaps here what Paul is saying is through childbearing, through that hardship of just being a woman and and bringing life into the world that is part of the fall that happened with Eve, women learn to become more like the Lord because of the great sacrifice it is to bring children into the world. That one act is so sacrificial that it automatically makes you more like Christ. And in that, we have a blessing. Okay, so... I did do more digging. I did find a little bit more there from what Paul is saying here, even though he kind of says it as such an aside. He doesn't explain himself at all, but I think that could be part of what he's talking about. And you know what? I can I can run with that, okay? But how about this? How about Adam not being deceived? Are you sure? Pretty sure he was deceived by Eve. I mean, he ate the fruit. He bears no consequence whatsoever. All right, so it's debatable. Was he deceived or did he know what he was doing? If he knew what he was doing, is that a different type of sin? We can talk about that later. Women can't teach men. Can women teach males? What is happening here, right? Okay, so, and when I ask this in the book, what is happening here, I legitimately mean I probably need a lot more study on this. This verse is really difficult. Okay, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to Paul. In my cozy kitchen, I smirk a bit writing this fully tongue in cheek, but with plentiful rage of the female advocate ready to pounce. We must also remember these are letters to churches that we are reading churches with issues we don't know about exactly and issues we may no longer have. At the time of Paul, Gentiles were flooding into synagogues. In the Greco-Roman world, women were not as educated as men. They also often participated in anti-biblical activities to their many gods, specifically in Ephesus to the god of Artemis. Women were not great options for teachers or leaders and likely were more of a disturbance when speaking in the synagogue than an asset. Luckily, Paul is an advocate of women learning at that time in history, albeit quietly. He was not nearly as sexist as his cultural counterparts who did not educate women equally. 
In Romans 16, Paul honors women ministers, apostles, deacons, and servants by name, Phoebe, Prissa, Mary, Junia, Tryphena, Trophosa, and Julia. So clearly, Paul is not against all female instruction or leadership, but here he does seem to be. Specificity, context, and language might just be getting in the way of our understanding. We need to study all three, and luckily there are some marvelous teachings on this, including the thought-provoking essay by theologian Marge Mauchko. And guys, I don't know how to say her name. I do know how to spell it. It's M-O-W-C-Z-K-O. All right. Additionally, the phrase in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15 Exercise, that word exercise, in the phrase exercise authority is best translated as usurp. Women were not allowed to supplant church leadership. This doesn't mean that they were not allowed to be church leaders. And perhaps the childbearing phrase is in regards to Mary bringing forth Yeshua as well. So we have a few options here to consider. Paul is either talking to a specific church at a specific time. The translation is horrific and unclear. Paul has lost his mind. This is not Paul writing or a mix of some of these. What we cannot sit easily with is a Paul contradicting all of the rest of scripture. What I do know is that this verse has been an extraordinary opportunity for men to sin against women throughout their history. Taken out of context with no other testimony from scripture backing those false interpretations, this remains a stumbling block for believers. In this sense, Paul has been used for evil, and this is why we must be careful with Paul. As the above article by Moutsko describes, in the first chapter of 1 Timothy, Paul talks about people reaching different teaching different doctrines, myths, and endless genealogies. It is quite possible the uneducated women in Ephesus were disturbing the knowledge and teaching of Scripture with myths, etc. In fact, throughout much of 1 Timothy, Paul seems to be concerned with false teachers. It sounds as if this church had a particular problem with non-biblical doctrine, and perhaps the women there were at the helm of the diversion, some of them likely sexual in nature. In this case, Paul is right in refusing to allow the women to have an influential say. At this point, their doctrines were false but powerful enough to lead others astray. I find it telling that many progressive churches do not abide by this section of Paul's writing. They believe it is contextual, but the other verses about laws and abolishing laws aren't. Picking and choosing again, aren't we? The church seems too often to accept tertiary interpretations of Paul where it suits a seeker-friendly message, but where it may offend, oh no, Paul is simply hammering out a social issue of the day. Funny how that works. In Acts 2, we are told that in the last days God will pour out his spirit and that sons and daughters will prophesy. Women are not silent or excluded. In context, the concept that Paul teaches that women cannot teach just cannot be accurate. Do you see the issue with rushing through Paul as if he is speaking to us, our culture, and our traditions, or the problems with shallow interpretations and quick uses of single verses out of context? Paul is difficult. Much of scripture was written for us, but not to us. This distinction becomes essential when reading Paul. As we read through his letters, it will help to apply these and other principles so that we don't get led astray to our own destruction. As Peter warns, in recent years, the internet and access to scripture has expanded so marvelously. So marvelously. Let us take this brief opportunity to teach further into our scriptural understanding so that we may be prepared for the times to come. Get to know Paul and the Greco-Roman world a bit better and see how the church in Acts likely greatly resembles much of the church today. Out of confusion, may we be like Paul, desiring to set the record straight and wisely mediating between confounding doctrines and forces.
I believe Satan only had to tell both Jews and Gentiles one lie in order to forever split and steal power from God's church, that Yeshua diminished God's law. This one lie makes it impossible for Gentiles to be fully obedient and impossible for the Jew to accept Yeshua as Messiah. Dispelling this one lie will unify believers and allow the Jews and Christians to see Yeshua as he really was and is, the Messiah, the living Torah. In this, we encounter the unifier, the refiner, the rock that does not move. In our Father's instruction, we can take full confidence that he has not changed and will not, and we have assurance that in him we are set free and then set on the path of righteousness. No longer bound to death and lies, we live by the spirit of life, accompanied by Holy Spirit empowerment for love, power, and self-control. Your Heavenly Father generously offers you good instruction into the destiny he has designed for you. The one lie of Satan has destroyed family, catalyzed chaos, confused God's word, impeded deep relationship, and distracted from Yahweh's message. But the truth will set you free. And beyond freedom, there awaits blessing we have not yet discovered when we engage in submissive obedience. There's no division in God, and there's no division in his word. May this miraculous fact unite his family and give us the strength for the days ahead, putting all hope in the fullness of the gospel and the day when God's God will restore all things. That's the end of that chapter. So you guys, I just want to say, um, because Paul is so difficult, there are years of study, I think, that would probably be necessary to truly, fully engage with the context of the culture of the day, with the language that Paul is using, and um, with right and righteous interpretation of the scriptures that are there. Uh, with understanding some of the scriptures that are actually in question as to whether or not they should be there or whether or not they were were originally part of what Paul taught. Um, I think the issue of women and women is a very, very difficult one because I do think women are supposed to be the image of the bride of Christ and of the church. And that puts us in a position, right, uh, under the authority of our husbands, right? Um, and I think so much of that has to do with more of protection and um, spiritual leadership. And the Bible actually talks about if the husband is not a spiritual leader, then it is upon the woman to be a spiritual leader. Um, Not to mention that in at least Jewish tradition, based on their text going back a long time, the women were supposed to have complete authority over their home. You know, they were supposed to be the ones that had the say of what happened and had the say over the spiritual guidance of the children in the house. And this makes a lot of sense when you look at what happens culturally in the Old Testament between women and men. Um, Not to mention, you actually see in the uh, podcast that I'm going to release later this week with my sister talks about this. You see stories of women actually um, going around their husband's wishes (laughs) and um, subverting their husband's authority in righteous ways that that God... um, and other people in the Bible recognize as righteous. I'll give you one good example we don't bring up in our podcast. And this is when Moses' wife ends up having to quickly circumcise their son because Moses has refused to do it, isn't doing it, isn't doing it in the time that God wants him to. God is about to punish, right? He's about to, you know, exercise some judgment there. And Moses' wife is like, we're getting this done. I'm doing this. My responsibility, our responsibility is first and foremost directly to the Lord. And so you have, again, these Old Testament stories that seem 
a little out of alignment with some of what Paul writes. And so we have to, we have to wrestle with this and we have to grapple with this. And this is a hard discussion for both men and women because women get so upset. I think women take it to a degree um, of feminism that is inappropriate and wrong right? They're willing to walk in and usurp authority from men. And they're willing to walk in and say, we just need more women, no matter whether they're wise or not. We just need women in leadership, no matter, even if it's a bad idea spiritually for the church, even if it's a bad idea for the leadership of the church, even if it's a bad idea for the women and men sitting in the pews, we just, you know, and so you see that side. And then you see the other side that has happened for hundreds of years, where women were never allowed to have a voice and you have this imbalance in leadership in the church where it's all, it's so focused on men and then the women aren't able to receive. And so we need to grapple with what the Bible actually has to say. I'm going to just give you a preface now. When you go and you listen to the podcast I do with my sister later this week, I promise you we have not hammered hammered it home. We, we don't have it all down. I'm, I'm not proclaiming that we have 100% truth on this issue. What I do want to do is challenge your presuppositions and start to think about these things um, with some humility as I have begun to. I've begun to understand that um, what God wants us to do is approach these issues with humility. If God came to me today and said, I want you to stop teaching everybody, um, and the Holy Spirit said that, I, I would do it. I, I hope I would do it. I hope I would say, Lord, I'll do what you want. <laughs> what Whatever it is you ask, you 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 send me out. You do with me as you will. I hope that's my attitude towards the Lord and towards his word. Um, Lord, say to me what you really want to say. Tell me the truth. Show me the truth. Teach me the truth. Show me how to find the truth. May I wrestle with this as somebody who loves and adores your word. So, um, I pray that you would approach this topic this way as well. And all of Paul and all of his writings with that level of humility. Just remember, he was a brilliant Pharisee. Brilliant. He knew the scripture better than me, better than you. He had it memorized. And so he's pulling stuff and he's quoting stuff and he has theories and ideas and philosophies. He is, you know, embedding into his writing. We have to kind of go discover them again. And understand also that our English translation is not always the best or easiest place to look for that discovery. But luckily you have a, a lot of information available to you right in the palm of your hand. And so um, if you need good direction on um, where are the good teachers versus kind of the heretics, right? Where are some places to go and find better interpretations here? Um, I can reach out. I'm happy to send you to some ministries that might disagree with me, honestly, but that I think are trying to wrestle with this accurately as well. All right. I hope you have enjoyed the reading of that chapter. It's at the end of my book. For those of you who get through the book, that's at the end. And so I wanted to give you the foundation for what I think about Paul for the future podcast that you listen to. Um, and if you haven't picked up the book, I'd love to get you a copy. Reach out. We can figure that out. Or you can go on Amazon. Um, you can also go to my re website. And um, I will be back next week. <laughs>